0: Uh, and maybe a few years when I was really, really young. Uh, With the exception of those few years, I've spent my entire life in a small town, a town of, I would say, probably 1,400 people or less. And uh, I love living in a small town, but uh, I'm sure most of you in here have probably lived in a small town your whole life, so you understand this. One of the things that we sort of accept as, as just part of living in a small town is that everyone knows everybody else's business. And even if they don't know your business, they'll just make something else up so it sounds like they know your business. Um, That's kind of how it works, right? In a small town, everybody knows everyone else. And um, if you're anything like me, you uh, hear a lot of sentences. Maybe even you start some sentences with things like this. Have you heard about so-and-so? Or, uh, hey, you didn't hear this from me, but... And then we go on to tell them. Or, hey, I'm not supposed to say anything, but just don't tell anybody else, and then they do the same thing to somebody else, probably. Or, or, hey, I heard that so-and-so said this or did this, or, you know, it's none of my business, but do you know this about this person? Maybe you've heard some of these sentences, and I don't know what it is about small towns. I mean, maybe it's just innocent boredom. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. Um, maybe it's something that if we talk about other people, we feel better about what's going on in our lives. Maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe it's we like to use knowledge as a weapon. Maybe we feel like we can have the upper hand. You know, if, if, if something happens, we might have some, uh, um, you know, something to hold over somebody else's head, maybe to use as, as, as leverage there. I, I don't know what it is, but I think, truth be told, we tend to kind of like gossip. We like gossip. And sometimes we like it to the point where we're even let down. When we go to tell somebody something and they've already heard it from somebody else, we're like, oh, man. You know, you know we, we feel let down, or, or maybe we feel a sense of accomplishment when we hear something before somebody else does. You know, we feel good about that. And we know, I think, most of you who have grown up in the church, we know that we shouldn't gossip. The Bible talks about it. And so what we do to try to make ourselves feel better about it is we try to call it something else. Well, it's not really gossip. You know, I'm just, you know, or, or we say, well, is it really gossip if it's true? You know, we say things like that. To try to make it seem like gossip really isn't gossip which brings up an interesting question. Can gossip ever be a good thing? Is gossip ever a good thing? I was actually kind of trying to think of uh, illustrations that kind of explain this, and I stumbled on a, a news program, and the news anchor was saying, uh, and they asked that question, is gossip a good thing? And they were uh, went on to explain that gossip is actually, scientists have, have uh, found that gossip is actually good. It lowers your heart rate and it does this. And I'm like, come on, what a load of garbage. But they're trying to convince people that gossip is actually a good thing. The truth is, I think that whether we want to admit it it or not, most of us are uh, pretty comfortable, I think, with gossip until we become the headline, until we become the topic of conversation, then we don't like it. But I tell you what, if you are a person who loves gossip, if you love scandalous little tidbits of information, you are going to absolutely love this story today. We are in John chapter 4, and this is one of those stories, uh, one of the things that I do, just a side note here, I always uh, mention bringing your Bibles and I know that might kind of seem like an old thing, like who actually carries a real Bible to church anymore? Um, that's one of the bad things about having things up on the screen is you feel like you don't need a Bible. And so just a reminder that if you've got a Bible at home, uh, if you can remember, bring it with you. I don't care if it's on a smartphone, a tablet, you know, a paper, but whatever it is, uh, stone tablets and a chisel, whatever you use to read your Bible, bring it with you if you can. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We'd love to make sure that you have one, okay? But this is one of those reasons uh, why I like for you to have your own Bible, because we're going to be looking at a giant passage of Scripture. Now, if you didn't bring one today, it's going to be up on the screen. Um, you can look it up online if you've got your smartphone, or we should have print Bibles in the pew in front of you. So follow along. But we're going to be talking about a lot of Scripture, and I'd love for you to have that in front of you. So John 4... And it's one of those passages where there's like, there is potential scandal at every turn. I gonna mean, almost every paragraph kind of has, it could have its own headline in a gossip magazine. And I really hate to kind of spoil a good story, but really the best headline of this entire passage comes at the very end. Uh, John chapter 49, and uh, I'm of going to kind of skip around verse 39 to 42, but it started off like this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Then skipping down to verse 42 And this is what they said, we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. That's the headline of this passage, the main point of this passage. But here's the truth that I hope I can share with you today. It's this, as our relationship with Jesus grows, the headline of our life should change. And it should keep changing until the headline reads this, he is the savior of the world. I know because I've seen it myself. That's what the headline of every Christian life should read. I know that he's the savior of the world because I've seen it myself. This is a story that's full of drama. It's a story that's full of indecency, at least from certain perspectives. And since there's a headline, kind of a juicy tidbit in every paragraph, we're going to do things a little differently today. We're actually going to tell the story just a little bit at a time because the real story of this story is that the story changed. It changes over time. And that's the real story in this passage. So here we go with this first paragraph here. Uh, just keep your Bibles open. John chapter 4, we're going to start with verses 1 through 6. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria. And He came to a, a town ta- to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Joseph had given to his son. Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Sorry, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, every good story I learned growing up um, in English class, every good story has tension. There's a protagonist and there's an antagonist, and one of the things, common things that we see in the story of Jesus is this constant tension. Between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees of that day, and really there was tension between these people, uh, these two groups before Jesus even arrived on the scene. And we know that we started this series uh, before Christmas. We kind of used this uh, Carpenter's Son series to build up to Christmas, and we told kind of the story of Jesus' birth. And That's what we're doing through this whole series, talking about who Jesus is. And uh, after. Christmas, we began to talk about Jesus' ministry, and it started with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was the one that kind of prepared the way for Jesus, and you might remember we've preached on this passage, I preach on this passage, and John the Baptist, uh, when he saw the Pharisees coming to him, he's out in the middle of nowhere, he's wearing camel's hair, he's eating locusts, doing all kinds of weird stuff, and despite the fact that he's out in the middle of nowhere, people are flocking to hear what he has to say. So the Pharisees show up, and he says, you brood of vipers, he says, who warned you about the coming judgment? And he told them to repent, to turn. Now, that was big. He was telling the religious people that they needed to repent. To repent means to turn. That means you did something wrong. And that was something they were not willing to admit. He knew that. And they hated him for it. But he was calling them to turn, to turn from their sin, to turn from their empty religion. And so then Jesus arrives, and people begin to follow Jesus. And we read it right here in this passage. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was making even more disciples than John. So the Pharisees began to kind of set their sights on Jesus. And it says, for that reason, Jesus left Judea and went to Galilee. So I want you to understand what's going on in this story. Tension is mounting. Some people already wanted Jesus dead. We read in other passages that his time had not yet come. But there were people that wanted Jesus dead already. Now, we read here that for that reason, he left Judea and went to Galilee. And that wasn't uncommon. But what is kind of uncommon here is the way that he decided to do that. And we've got a map here to kind of illustrate what happened. If you can kind of see these, uh, there's not much color variation here. But that blue path is the most direct uh, path you can see uh, from Judea to Galilee. to Galilee. And you can see that blue path. And for whatever reason, the Jews did not take that blue path, even though it was the most direct route. Instead, you can see they went way around, which we never do that, right? The only reason we ever go around is because there's an interstate. There were no interstates. They were on foot. And so this was a huge inconvenience. So why is it that people went all the way around? Well, you see right there in the middle, there's a place called Samaria. And you can see side cars on there. And that's where Jesus decided to go through. Why did Jesus do that? Why did people decide to go all the way way around Samaria? Well, Samaritans were not well-liked by the Jews and and vice versa. The Samaritans would have been considered uh, half-breeds by the Jews. That's what they would have called them. And this whole uh, problem came from, I think it was about seven years before, the Assyrians had defeated the northern kingdom of Israel. You might remember after David and then after Solomon, the kingdom divided. It wasn't just one kingdom, it was two. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. This was the divided kingdom. And the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians did was they uh, took the city... And took the land, they, they deported all the Jews, oh, not all the Jews, excuse me, they left some Jews behind, they deported most of the Jews, and then they repopulated that town with other people that they had already conquered, and they also filled that town with other Assyrians. And so it becomes this hodgepodge of people. People that had already been defeated by the Assyrians, were relocated there, there were Assyrians there, and then there was a few Jews left. And of course, they're living in a community together, they begin to intermarry, and so um, basically, there's their blood is mixed, their religions start to mix. I can remember I went to uh, Haiti when I was in college, and one of the things that just blew my mind, if you know anything about the history of Haiti, it was settled by the, the French. They had their Catholic views. They brought slaves from Africa, and they had their voodoo views, and so they basically forced these Africans into believing Catholicism, but they still had all these voodoo traditions, and so Uh, What happened now is you go to Haiti, and I was talking to somebody, and he said, you know, when you go into these really remote places in Haiti, some of the really small towns, when you go to visit the Catholic priest in the town, he's also the voodoo witch doctor for the town. I mean, that's how intertwined their religions are. And that's kind of what happens here. There's an intertwining of not just blood, but of religions. There's There's some Jewish beliefs in there, but there's some pagan beliefs as well. And so that was the reason why the Jews hated the Samaritans. There were racial tensions, religious tensions, political tensions. These people did not like each other to the point where they went all the way around Samaria just to stay away from the Samaritans. But it says here that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to? He didn't have to. Most people didn't. But he did. Was he in a rush? Did he need to buy some time away from the religious leaders so he went to to where he knew they wouldn't be? Or did he have a divine appointment? My guess is the answer is yes. Probably a combination of all those things, or at least two of them. But we read here that Jesus, it says, was tired. Jesus was a man just like we are. He was tired from his journey, and so he sat down at Jacob's well. Let's pick up the story, uh, John chapter 4, verse uh, 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus sits down, and he's all alone. The disciples went off to go find food, and he's alone for a little bit, and then it says, A woman arrives, and she comes at kind of a strange time. This is a well. It's at the six hour. This is most likely the middle of the day, right at noon. And getting water, you need to understand, this is a part of their culture. Getting water, we, they didn't have it piped in like we have it nowadays. And so one of the tasks of a housewife was every day they would go get the water that they needed from the well for the entire household. And I mean, that's hard work. You, have you ever carried like a 5-gallon bucket of water? I mean, that's it, that's hard work, you know, to, to carry it. And they were carrying it for sometimes, you know, a mile. I don't know how far they'd have to go depending on where they live but they had to carry it a while. This is hard work. It was something they had to do every single day. So most women would do it early in the morning. Some of them would do it late at night, but most early in the morning before it got hot. This is an arid climate, but this woman comes at the ho- at the hottest part of the day. And you can already kind of feel the tension. Here's this Jewish man and this Samaritan woman, and they're at the same place, and the woman could probably feel the tension, and then the hair stands up on the back of her neck as Jesus speaks to her. He says something to her, the last thing she expected. Now, this might not seem like a big deal. I mean, we would do this, right? If we see a stranger, we would try to be friendly and at least acknowledge them. But Jews and Samaritans didn't talk. And not only that, but men didn't address women publicly like this. So this is like different on on a couple different levels. And the woman, she's not shy about pointing it out. She says, how in the world can you ask me for a drink? But not only is there this tension between man and uh, male and female, and this tension between Jew and Samaritan, but because of the the things that had happened in the past, the Jews actually had rules uh, where basically if Jesus were to take a drink from her vessel, it would have made him ceremonially unclean. And so this woman is taken aback that Jesus would, would do that. Now, Jesus, we need to understand, Jesus by this time is popular. We ha- these huge crowds are following him. He's a celebrity, and I don't know if you've been watching any TV lately, but doesn't it seem like every celebrity has some sort of scandal going on? I mean, it's just all the, the, the sexual abuse allegations, just tons of things going on. It seems like every famous person has some sort of scandal that they're plagued with. Politicians, celebrities, celebrities. And it starts with something small, and then it kind of goes from there. And this story almost kind of has that feel. Like, I mean, if there were reporters at the time, they'd be all over this, waiting to see what was going to happen, getting ready to, to publish their story, because there are things going on here that people didn't think were proper. I mean, this is some good gossip. This is stuff that have, it would have kept the coffee shop talking for weeks about what was going on here. I and mean, this is good stuff, good gossip material that's going on here. But not only that, there's more to this story, and if, if you're hearing the story for the first time, you don't know this yet. Uh, most of you probably have, and Jesus certainly knew because he knew everything, but this woman didn't know that Jesus knew this little detail that made this whole interaction even more scandalous than what it appears right now. So let's continue our story, John four ten through 15. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that you were saying it to, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and as his sons did and, and livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Can't blame her for that, right? Yeah, show me where this spring is so I don't have to haul water every single day because this is like terrible, the bane of my existence. Now, last week we talked about how there are two realms. There is the physical realm and there is a spiritual realm. And Jesus, at least from our very limited perspective, kind of seems to fall precariously between the two. And, of course, it's our lack of understanding. We don't quite understand what it meant, but we do know this, that Jesus is fully man and that Jesus is fully God. So he's a physical being, but he seems to kind of have his head in the clouds in all the right kinds of ways, if you know what I mean. For example, here we kind of see this irony. I had never really noticed this before and I don't know why I didn't, but there is tremendous irony in this passage because the disciples, they're out and what are they doing? Finding physical food. And what happens? Jesus points out later that they missed an opportunity to feed someone spiritually. When they come back with food and beg him to eat, he says in verse 34, 34, and we know he was tired and hungry and thirsty because he sat down, right? But despite that, he said, my food is to do the will of God. Not only that, but Jesus is thirsty, but he puts his physical need aside to address the spiritual thirst that this woman had that she didn't even realize she had. There's tremendous irony in this passage. And he says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water. And the woman, just like the disciples, is kind of stuck on the physical. She thinks Jesus is talking about physical water. And I mean, she's a pretty streetwise woman, and she's kind of thinking, I think, the same thing that we know. If something sounds too good to be true, that it probably is. And I think she, she thinks that's what's going on, that Jesus is offering something that he cannot really deliver on. So she says, you didn't bring anything to draw water with. You're just going to make this spring of, of water well up? I mean, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, you, under, you understand what she's saying here, right? She's making a dig at him, isn't she? Because she says, our father Jacob, but this is a Samaritan. You know what she's doing, right? She's she's identifying herself with Jacob. She's trying to kind of poke and jab at Jesus a little bit. And she expects Jesus to answer, no, of course I'm not greater than Jacob, but Jesus doesn't say that. She asks the question, where are you going to get this living water? Her mind is focused on this active source of flowing water, but Jesus meant something else. He wasn't talking about physical water. He was pointing all the way back to the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, the Bible talks about living water. You can read about it in the Psalms, you can read about it in Isaiah, all throughout the scripture. Just to give you one picture of this, Isaiah 44.3 says this, for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. You say, well, that sounds like water, right? Then he goes on. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring, my blessings on your descendants. That's the kind of Water that Jesus is talking about, spiritual life. Water gives life, right? We know that. It's like you see a stream in a desert and you take like a, a zoomed out aerial view and it's just completely brown and dead except for this little strip of green, right? Following the river. Water gives life. Jesus isn't talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual life. And you can already see, I told you that the real story was how this story changes, how her perspective changes over time. It's already starting to change. When she first spoke to Jesus, what did she say? Called him a Jew. How is it that a Jew can talk to a Samaritan? But now, she begins to call him, sir. There's a change already. Let's continue on. John John 4, 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, "'I I have no husband.' Jesus said to her, "'You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband, so what you've said is true.' The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship.' Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.'" You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This conversation takes a bit of a uh, uncomfortable turn, doesn't it? Kind of out of nowhere. And of all the gossip-worthy plot lines in this story, this by far I think is the most provocative. It's the whole reason why she came to gather water in the middle of the day when nobody else was there. That was intentional. It wasn't bad planning. It was perfect planning on her part, or at least so she thought, and it ended up being perfect planning for her. She planned it. She wanted to be there when no one else was there. It also explains if you got your Bible there, she goes from being pretty talkative, right? Count her words that she speaks in the beginning, and then count her words when she speaks here. Her word count significantly decreases. She gets real quiet, real quick, when Jesus starts talking about this stuff. See, Jesus offered her living water, and she wants to receive it, but before he can give it, there is something a spiritual need that he needs to address with her so seemingly out of nowhere Jesus says hey go get your husband and she says why well, don't I have a husband that's all she says she's kind of leaving out a lot of details and Jesus says I know you don't have a husband you've had five husbands and you're with another man who you're not married to so you're right you don't have a husband man now this was unacceptable even by Jewish and Samaritan standards, and, and you might think that well, divorce wasn't that common during this day. Actually, it was pretty common. Uh, you remember when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount several months back? That was why Jesus addressed the issue of, of divorce. He said, if you get divorced for any other reason other than marital unfaithfulness, it's the same as adultery. That's what he says. And that's because uh, they had, divorce had become so permissive even in Jewish circles. There was even a famous Jewish uh, teacher that, that said, even if your wife burns dinner, you can, you can get a divorce. You can serve her. Uh, this is fact. You can serve her with a divorce. You just have to give her a, a certificate of divorce, and that's it. And Jesus says, uh that's not what marriage is about. But there was a line. Three divorces was kind of the line, and this woman, this woman far exceeded the three divorce rule that the Jews had somehow made up. This woman does not have a good reputation. That's why she came to the well in the middle of the day when nobody else is there, because she didn't want to deal with the stares and the gossip and the talking and the laughing and the whispering. That's why she came in the middle of the day. And again, the story begins to change. Starts with Jew. Says, I you're a Jewish man. And then she calls him Sir, and now all of a sudden she says, I can see that you're a prophet. Do you see the progression? How her understanding of Jesus is changing? And all of a sudden, she wants to change the subject. She doesn't want to talk about what Jesus has brought up. And it's, it's interesting. As it's her understanding of Jesus deepens, the personal nature of faith deepens. Jesus begins to get to the heart, and she's uncomfortable with it. She realizes that faith is actually going to have to require something of her. And so, she, you know what she does? She, she puts the brakes on, big time. She puts the brakes on and she tries to backtrack and zoom out of her personal life. She doesn't like things being focused on her personal life. So what does she do? She goes to religion. She asks a big, vague question about religion. She says, you know, you guys worship on your mountain. We worship on this mountain so I can see you're a prophet. What mountain are we actually supposed to worship on? And Jesus says, "Not so. it's not so easy. We're not going away from this. This whole thing that we're talking about is not going away. You're missing the point, he says. Salvation, he says, started with the Jews. They were God's chosen people. Jesus was a Jew. He went to the Jews first when he started his ministry. But he says, it's not your blood that matters. It doesn't matter what mountain you worship on. He says, true believers worship in spirit and truth. In other words, true worshipers are changed from the inside out. She might have claimed to be a religious person, but it hadn't affected her on the inside. So Jesus says, you know, faith is not just an outward act. It's not just a ritual. True worship is in spirit. People who are led by his spirit, the same life-giving spirit we talked about from Isaiah. It's people who worship in spirit, but also truth. They have a standard by which they live. A standard that she wasn't living by. So her understanding of Jesus gets even deeper, and she's still trying to wrap her mind around what Jesus just said. And she says, kind of, almost seems like she throws her hands up and says, well, the Messiah will explain this when he comes. And Jesus, in a very rare moment of transparency about being the Messiah, he doesn't usually do this, but he flat out comes and says, I am he that you speak of. I am the Messiah. The story picks up 27 through 30. And just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, uh, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. And she said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, I asked the question, maybe if you were on Facebook, you saw the picture this week, kind of... uh, promoting our sermon, and the question on that slide, was on that picture was this, can gossip ever be a good thing? I guess it depends on how you define gossip, but if you call what's happening here gossip, then absolutely yes, it can be. She was talking about Jesus. She was telling everybody she knew about Jesus, this is the good kind of gossip. She couldn't wait, and did you notice what happened? She's so excited, she leaves the water behind. Do you see the significance of that? We talked about how the disciples were focused on the physical. We talked about how she was so focused on the physical, but something changes in this story, doesn't it? She goes from worrying about the physical to now she's not even thinking about it. She leaves her water jug behind because now her mind is on something spiritual. She wants to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But here's what's really powerful about this story. What is the message that she shares with her friends? probably not her friends, but the people in town. What is the message that she shares? She comes to them and says, you already know about me. You know my reputation. You guys talk about it all the time, let's be honest. But here's a guy who knew everything about me. What a powerful, what a strange testimony, isn't it? What a strange thing for her to say. Come see the man who knew everything about me. That's a powerful testimony to admit that you have a past. And that even though Jesus knows all your dirty secrets, that he cares enough to treat you like a person. And not only that, that he, he here offers to give this woman eternal life. And, and she asked the question, she says, can this be the Christ? And, and she anticipates the answer being a no. That's what the original language suggests. But instead it says, many people believed because of what she said. There was no pride in her testimony, she put it all out there, didn't she? There's no sugarcoating what she had done. She just simply laid it out for people. Come see the man who's told me everything I ever did. Concluding the story, John 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Many people believe because of her testimony, but again, do you see the progression here? Do you, do you see that things change? It goes from believing because of what she said to seeing it for themselves. We know that he's the Savior of the world. This is a beautiful story, isn't it? And I I grew up hearing the story. I've heard it a thousand times, and every time I hear about it, something changes about my perspective. I understand it at a deeper level, and that certainly happened this week. And it's a beautiful story. And I gotta be real honest. I don't feel like I can bring a lot to it. I kind of tells it. Stu- it kind of teaches itself, doesn't it? I'm not giving you a whole lot, other than what's right here. Because it's a great story that shows progress shows progression from. Jew, to sir, to prophet, and then to Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Her understanding of Jesus changed as she was with him. And I want to ask you a question. Where does your understanding, your belief in Jesus fall within that progression? When you walked into the doors today and as you're sitting here in your seats, what do you believe about Jesus? Where does it fall in this scale? She thought he's just the Jewish man at first. Maybe that's what you think about Jesus, that Jesus is just a man that lived long ago. Maybe he was a good guy, maybe he wasn't. Then she addresses him as Sir. Maybe you just think that Jesus was a good teacher. Then she calls him Prophet. Maybe you just think Jesus was some sort of prophet. But then she says, No, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. What do you believe about him? That's what this series is all about asking who Jesus really is what the Bible says about him, and what you believe. You know, this woman, she had some idea about religion. She knew about God and worship, but it wasn't personal. It hadn't hadn't touched her heart yet. It was this distant thing. And Jesus says, that's not faith. That's religion. That's empty religion. That's going through the motions when you don't really believe, and and I feel very strongly that that happens a lot in the church today. There's a lot of people, and I think they're well-intentioned, and I think they want better, I I think, But they have this sense like that they should do religious things, but it's just kind of like they feel like they're checking boxes. You know, they feel like they're just going through the motions, right? We talk about it all the time, that it feels like we're just doing these things just to sort of check them off the list without really any belief or feeling or maybe even without any any belief. And how do we know that we're doing that? How do we know that we're just coming and doing religious things, but our heart's really not in it? I think here's a good indicator for you, if you're wondering if that's you. If there's a huge gap between your lifestyle here How you act here, what you sing about here, what you read here, and what you study here. If there's a huge gap between what happens here and what happens in your personal life, I would say that's probably a good indicator that when you're here, you're simply going through the motions. And I want to tell you, and hear me, that's okay. I'm not saying it's okay to continue. I'm saying if you walked in the door today and you realized, oh man, that's me. I'm not saying, well, that's it, I'm giving up. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, don't stop there. Don't let that be all this is, just going through the motions. We can put on a great religious, religious-looking show, but true worship is when we worship in spirit and truth, when we allow the word of God to be the standard by which we live, when we allow his spirit to, to move in us and to guide us and to do the things that he's called us to do. And you need to understand, just like the woman, as you pursue a relationship with Christ, your understanding deepens. And I want to tell you that I don't care where you start. I don't care if you walked in here today and maybe you didn't believe a thing about Jesus. Again, that's okay if that's where you're starting from. You just can't stay there. You can't stay there. It's got to progress. And as the woman starts, she doesn't know anything about Jesus. And and how, how could she? Nobody shared Jesus with her but her relationship with God progresses. And the same thing needs to be true about us. We can't just let this be some empty religious show. We have to have a relationship with Jesus. And as our relationship with Jesus grows, the headline of our life should change, and it's going to keep changing. Until the headline reads, He is the Savior of the World. I know because I've seen it myself. That needs to be the headline of our lives. That became the headline of this woman's life. That needs to be our headline as well. Let's pray.